So around a thousand people all over Ireland were surveyed and asked about what were the big questions that they would ask or they wanted to have answers to. And there were six that rose to the top and over the course of the next number of weeks we're going to look at uh, these six questions. What's the story uh, is sort of the, the initiative uh, that's being used to, uh, to capture people's attention and to look at the answers to these questions say, is there a story to life? Because if there's no story to life, then there's not really any answers to any of the questions. And the question we're looking at this evening is, can we make sense of our suffering? Can we make sense of our suffering? An awful lot of people ask that question in some shape or form. Uh, whenever I do a survey in school and I ask them, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Or what are some of the things that cause you to doubt or disbelieve? The, the issue of suffering is always there at, either at the top or towards the top. Asked in all sorts of different ways. Why is there evil? Why is there war? Why is there poverty? Or even as one person put it once, why are there wasps? Um, somebody else asked, why do dogs have to die? Or why do they have to die so young? Um, somebody else asked a much more poignant question, why am I so ill? And whatever way it's asked, this question is one that keeps coming up. And it keeps coming up because it, suffering seems so unfair. Everybody has to face it at some point in their lives, and some face it more than others. And yet we are wired to look for meaning. We're convinced that there has to be meaning to life. And so we come to, to this question this evening. And the question isn't so much, why is there suffering? But it's more personal. It's less academic. Can we make sense of our suffering? It implies an experience of suffering. It's the voice of someone who looks at all that is going on in the world or all that has gone on in their lives and asks, is there any sense to this? And I don't want to be glib and I don't want to offer easy answers. But I fully believe the answer to this question is yes. Yes, we can make sense of our suffering. Our suffering particularly is not senseless. It is not senseless. There is a way to make sense of it. That will not give us all the answers here and now, but it will give us a way to, to cope and to understand what is going on. And I say yes because of two things. Yes, because there is a big story. And yes, because God is involved in our story. And those are two things that we want to see this evening. First of all, yes, because there is a big story. What's the story? That's a greeting that we use uh, all over Ireland. And I think it gets to something at the heart of who we are as 
Irish people, we are storytellers. We are born storytellers and we are story connectors. There's something in our DNA that loves to hear a story and to connect people and to connect stories. And I think there's something in our DNA as humans that speaks to us of what a story is about. A story is about purpose and meaning. We don't easily accept that life is pointless. I think actually that's our great fear, that life is pointless, that it has been pointless, that there is no meaning, and that our suffering is pointless, and something in us rebels against it. And so much around us has robbed us of the idea that life has meaning and purpose. We're told that there's no God, and that the universe is an accident. If that's the case, then there can be no meaning and no purpose to anything, much less our suffering. And I think the reality of our reaction against suffering, why is this happening, pushes back against the emptiness and the darkness of the claim that there's no God. We are storytellers. We are convinced that there is a story to life. We have our little micro-stories of your life and mine with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we think about the direction we're going, and we expect there to be meaning and purpose. We have an instinctive grasp of story, and we're right, because there is a big story. And that big story is especially helpful for us to understand what life is about, and particularly to make sense. That's what we're doing this evening, evening, to make sense of suffering. And so let's consider God's big story, first of all. This gives us the the sweep of life that shows us where our little micro story, our small story, how it fits in like a jigsaw piece into the great big story. And we see, ah, now I have got a grasp of what is happening, what has happened, what will happen. Now, I don't know all the details, but now things begin to make sense. And that's what we want. And so God's story comes in four parts. First of all, there's perfection created. Perfection created, a perfect start. The Bible's storyline starts with the stage being created. God, as it were, says, lights. There's light. And then he says, stage and scenery appears and land appears. Then he says, Animals and people, and they all burst into life. And the stage is set. A universe is made. A world is made. But look at it. Have a look. If you look all around this world, there's something missing. There's no decay. There's no suffering. There's no thorns. There's no weeds. There's no cancer. There's no sickness. There's no death made perfect. Everything is made gloriously perfect. It's made by God. And He is perfect, and what He makes is perfect. And that explains why we have an innate sense of value, and we have an innate sense of there being meaning. We're not accidents. We look at our bodies, we look at the world around us, and it's too beautiful, too well designed. There is 
a designer, there is an artist, there is an author. And all of that implies sense and purpose. And this makes sense of that deep longing that we have for everything to be right. That's the way it was made. It was made perfect. There is something deeply unnatural about the brokenness that we experience. Death is not natural, no matter how much we try to tell ourselves that it is. Cancer is not natural in this ultimate sense. It wasn't there at the beginning. It's not part of the blueprint. It's an intruder and an invader. And all of the brokenness is that. And so we were made for a perfect world. That instinct in us is right because that's how God made us. That's part one of God's story. It doesn't last long. It's Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But part 2 is entitled Disaster. Disaster. Something happens because we are no longer living in an idyllic paradise. Part 2 of the story sees it all go horribly wrong. What went wrong? Well, we broke it. The creature rebels against the Creator. That's what's happening with Adam and Eve. It isn't so much about apples or fruit. It's the fact that it was forbidden, not because it was fruit. It was God saying, here is the test piece that will show me that you are going to live under my care that you're going to let me be God rather than trying to run your lives your way. But Adam and Eve didn't do that. They said, no, we want to be like God. We want uh, to run things our way. And tragically, they ignored all of the evidence of God's good intentions, and they chose to listen to a dark lie, a lie from the realm of evil itself, from, from Satan. And they, they severed their loyalty to God, the giver of life. And as a consequence and as a punishment of that, everything starts to go downhill. Everything starts to disintegrate and to break down. Suffering and selfishness and decay and death come in. And if Genesis 1 and 2 explain to us why there's so much beauty and design and wonder in the world, then Genesis 3 explains why it's broken and brutal in places. We are now broken actors living on a broken stage. And all that we see from hurricanes to holocausts, from cancer to corporate greed, from accidents to deliberate brutality, are all consequences of that downward spiral set in place by Adam and Eve whenever they disobeyed God. The world is the way it is because we are the way we are. And it's not just that the problem's out there. The problems that are out there and that are in our physical bodies were a consequence of something that happened in the heart of Adam and Eve. 
And so we learn that the problem isn't just that there's a lot of stuff broken out there. That there's a problem in us. As uh, the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil does not run clearly between them and us, but through the heart of each person. And that makes much sense of our experience of a lot of the suffering that we face. Some of it comes to us because we live in a broken world. Accidents, natural disasters. Some because we live with with broken bodies. And some because we live among broken people who do broken and brutal things. And some, as we look at our own hearts, we look and think, well, that came out of me. I did that. And we're disappointed with ourselves. And so the Bible in its big story starts to explain not only why we have this longing for perfection, why we have this sense that there is an author and a meaning and a purpose, but it also explains to us why things are broken. And we need to be careful, though, in saying all of this, that that is not to say that specific trouble in an individual's life is the result of some specific sin in their lives. hope you see that as we've looked at this, that we all are broken actors on a broken stage from Genesis chapter 3 onwards. Every single human being uh, from Adam and Eve onwards have been broken actors on a broken stage with one exception. And we come to him now because God doesn't leave us there. What a a lost and hopeless place it would be if the story finished there. But this is why it's important for us to see that there is a big story. And the next part of God's big story is redemption. Redemption. We've had uh, perfection. We've had disaster. Now we've got redemption. Part three of the big story. All throughout part two, there are little signposts and promises where God was saying, I will send a rescuer, one who will fix the brokenness and who will judge the brutality. The Bible's word for rescuer is Messiah. And the Greek version of that Hebrew word is Christ. And so we have the coming of God the Son into the world. And he is known as Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus Christ. And as we start to meet this being who was spoken of in part two, whenever we were meeting all of the disaster that that is unfolding in the lives of mankind, somebody was going to come who would be a repairer of brokenness. And what do we find him doing? He strides through Galilee and Judea and even to Samaria And we see that he is the one who can undo the brokenness. We see him healing the sick. What about natural brokenness? Those natural disasters, storms. We see him calm the storm. The wind and the waves obeying the author of life who has stepped into the story. We see him providing food for the hungry. We see him undoing death. That was part of the great 
judgment that came whenever man rebelled against the Creator. And we, is there any hope for that suffering to be undone? Yes, there is one who can raise the dead. And what about that dark voice that spoke that terrible lie? Is there anyone that can defeat the demonic? Yes, he's here. We meet him in part three of the great story. We might think, well, that's it. We're all going to live happily ever after. He's just going to go about making everything new. Not yet. Because do you remember what we said? That the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. The problem isn't so much out there as first and foremost it's, it's in us. And we're not fit or ready to live in a perfect world. We'd only ruin it if we get disappointed with ourselves. You know, when we don't keep our own standards, how much more is it going to be like that if everything out there is perfect and we're the ones that are flawed, ruining it all the more? But God wouldn't do that. He says, no, I'll deal with the problem of your heart. The brokenness of the world is a symptom of a much deeper problem. And God's solution goes to the very heart of the problem, the human heart. And Jesus at the cross is taking all the rebellion. We might think, well, here's this man. He's going around putting things right. And then they killed him. Well, that was foolish because they've now ruined everything. They've killed the one who could make things right. But his death was deliberate, planned by God because his death wasn't something that he was a victim of. He came to live the life that we couldn't live and to die for the life that we had lived. And so he takes into himself the rebellion of the world into himself and he takes into himself the punishment that his people deserved so that he can offer forgiveness for all the wrong they've done and a complete change of heart so that they can be made new from the inside out. What a wonderful part of the story. And now he's saying that he's giving time for people to come to him and to find the solution so they can be made ready from the inside out for when part four comes. There's a fourth part to the story. You see, before we come to part four, isn't it helpful to see this big story and to see that, yes, our longings for perfection are right, to, to see that this is the reason why there's brokenness and evil and wickedness and brutality amidst the beauty. And to see that there is an answer for it that goes right to the very heart. It's not a superficial answer, more education. It's not we need more technology. It's not we need to develop new medication for this person or that person. Or we need to take them to therapy or counseling. No, it goes right to the depth of our hearts. The story's not done yet. Part four. Perfection. Regained. There's a fourth part yet to happen. You know, Barack Obama had a, a phrase embroidered onto a rug in the Oval Office. It was a phrase from a, a preacher from 1853. And it was a favorite of Barack Obama's and uh, Martin Luther King's. And he, the phrase was this, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. 
bends towards justice. He was saying, and the preacher who said it was saying that, that yes, history moves slowly, but it, it moves towards justice and things being, being right. And it gives us that idea of being on the wrong side and the right side of history. And it sounds good. And I think everything in us longs for it. We want justice. But unless there's a big story, and unless there's a judge, how can there ever be justice? Unless there's a God that we have to answer to, how can that ever be? Unless there's a God powerful enough to put everything right, how could this ever be the case? And what about all the people who die with injustice in the meantime and never see the putting right of all things? Well, here's where part four in the Bible is so wonderful. The story doesn't stop with the resurrection. It finishes instead with all things being made new. It finishes with evil being removed. It finishes with suffering gone for good. The last book of the Bible and almost the last chapter The writer John has a vision of what the future holds. And he says he sees a new heaven and a new earth. He hears a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And he hears a voice say from the throne, and it's the voice of that Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I am making everything new. What a relief. That sense that we have that our suffering ought to make sense is a right one that makes sense of our deep longings for fairness. It makes sense of our deep longings for justice. God will one day deal with all the injustice. God will one day put right all the brokenness. And He will put it right. You see, we are not simply beings whose life has a beginning, a middle, and an end. We are eternal beings whose life had a beginning and had a middle, but there's no end. And so, God's justice isn't finished when we die. People might say, well, so-and-so died and they got no justice. Well, God's not finished yet. And one day, all things will be made new. And those who have come to God's rescue and put their trust in Him will find not simply their sins forgiven, but all things made new, the universe made new, and them enjoying it, not for a short time, but forever and ever and ever and ever. Now there is hope. There is hope, a perfect world with perfect people that has no end and nothing to ruin it. So what does our big story tell us? It tells us to hang in there and to trust in God. To put our trust in Him, the author of the story, and our time will come. There is a big story. And the key thing is to connect our micro story into the big story. For there we find hope and justice and goodness and forgiveness. 
they run through that story. And there is a glorious beginning and there is a glorious ending. And we have seen the certainty of the ending in the person of Jesus Christ because the author of the story stepped into history and put right enough wrongs for us to say, oh, he has the power to do it. And then he went to the cross to pay for the personal wrong that we had done. And then he rose from the dead, triumphant. And he said, I will be back to make all things new. And so, as we connect our small story into that big story, we will find that it gives hope and it helps us to understand what's been going on. So that's the, the first thing that we see and the biggest of the two things. But let me say this. Secondly, can I make sense of my suffering? Can we make sense of our suffering? Yes. The first point was because there is a big story. And the second one is yes, because God steps into the story. We've already used that phrase. Yes, because God steps into the story. And I want to say three things about this. This shows us the author, the one who gives sense to the story. We get to see the author. Now, there's many things about your suffering and mine that I don't have the answer to. And it would be arrogant of me to say that I have the answer and that I can make sense of all of it for you. But he can. And not only is he all-knowing and all-powerful, but when we look at him, we can't say that he's indifferent. Unlike other religions, the God of the Bible is a God who gets involved. The author steps into the story. And what do we see him doing? We see at the cross a God who steps into his own story and a God who knows what pain is and a God who would... He is not a God who would rather sit back and, and coldly watch. He doesn't do that. He comes down among us to get involved to bring a solution. And at the cross we see the author. We see him facing unimaginable pain. We see a father and a son separated. We see abandonment and forsakenness. We see one feeling that the relationship that he has enjoyed has been torn apart. That's what it feels like to God the Son. We hear his anguished cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the questions we ask is, why God? Why did you let this happen to me? But when we look at the cross, we still don't know the answer to our question, but we know what the answer isn't. We know that it isn't that God doesn't care. It isn't because God is cold and heartless. It can't be that he isn't loving. Instead of walking away from this universe filled with rebels, God stepped into it because he cared. And rather than looking at our suffering and saying, I can't believe in God, we should look at the cross and say, I can believe that he is loving 
and caring. We can know the author. And we can know that he has a sympathy for us in our struggles and in our suffering. The book of Hebrews says he has been tested in every way like we are. It tells us that this suffering Jesus now sits on a throne that we can come to to find help in our time of need. He has suffered and he knows beyond a head knowledge he has a heart knowledge of what we need. And he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So, the author, you can know the author. And the second thing for us to see here is that he will walk with you in your story. You can know the author of the story, and he will walk with you in your story. What a wonderful thing. He's not just an author who writes this magnificent epic from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of the universe to a perfect world, and he sits by and goes, look at the masterpiece I've created. It's not either that he stepped into the story at one point in history and went to the cross and now reigns from heaven, sitting back with his arms folded. He says, I will walk with you by my Holy Spirit in your story. Day after day after day. Pain and hardship can either push us to God or away from God. And without God, we'll only ever find meaninglessness and no purpose to it. But the God who is the author of life and the bringer of hope and the bringer of rescue promises strength to cope. He writes you a check. That's what a promise is. He writes you a check for strength. He says, cash that. My grace is sufficient and my strength is made perfect in weakness. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. He promises strength to cope. There's another check in his checkbook. It's a promise of hope. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. We have hope. That's what we read from Romans 8. We find that we have hope. And we don't have all the answers. We don't have everything made new yet, because if we had all the answers and we had everything made new, we wouldn't need hope. But we have hope because God is going to make everything new. He has promised that those who come to him are more than conquerors. Nothing, no suffering can defeat those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. There's a promise of hope. And there's a promise of purpose. Another check for us. Romans 8. We're told that God works all things together for good. He has a track record of using the bleakest circumstances to bring the greatest good. We see it at the cross. But we see it too in the ordinary lives of people throughout His Word, His story. God has shown us over and over again that we shouldn't give up on Him halfway through a sentence. He's not finished writing the sentence yet. We should let Him finish speaking. We want to interrupt and say, I don't like what you're saying. He says, let me finish. Trust me. Trust me. 
We see it with Joseph. We see it with Hannah. We see it with Lazarus. That he is the, the unraveler of sorrow. That he is the one who wipes away every tear from our eyes. He is the one who uses all these things for good. He walks with us and he promises purpose in every affliction. That's why we should connect our small story into his big story. To know the author. What a thing. Oh, and here's another check. The promise of comfort. Purpose and hope and strength and comfort. Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Oh, what a God we have. One who will walk with us in the midst of every single difficulty. Yes. Yes. Can we make sense of our suffering? Well, yes, because we have the God of the universe who walks with us in it. We may not have all the answers yet, but we have the author walking with us, writing us checks of promise to supply all we need. Then the third one. What's the outcome of all of that? If he knows all of our suffering because he has experienced suffering because he stepped into the story, if he's that sort of an author, and if he walks with us in our story, the third thing is that we should trust him with our story. Trust him with our story. He calls us to trust him with our pain. To trust him that he has some good and wise plan in all of it. Trust him that it isn't pointless and meaningless. Trust him. It's a really big ask. There are some terrible things that people have to trust him with. Sickness, suicide, abuse, murder, ugly diseases that rob loved ones of their dignity. And God asks us to trust him with it. We should trust him. Why? Because he gave us his son. Before he asks us to trust him that he has a good purpose in our suffering, he takes on suffering at the cross and brings a good purpose out of it, not just to bring about our salvation, but he's also showing to us, trust me with your dark days, because out of that darkest day the universe has ever seen, I brought you the greatest good. It's not just a call to trust God in some sort of generic way. If you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, you need to go to that cross so that you can find the author who stepped in to take your blame and to take your shame and to take your guilt and to pay for it so that you could be made whole and restored from the inside out so that your story could be connected to the great story. Once you've done that, yes, yes, come and trust him. Not just for salvation, but with everything that's going on in our lives. Once we know this God and how intensely committed he is to his people, it fills us with a hope and a confidence. And we look at the cross and we see that he will stop at nothing for our good. It gives us hope and confidence 
with the problems that we face with the rest of our lives. Can we make sense of our suffering? I believe we can because there is a Redeemer who redeems not just our souls from hell, but who redeems our pains and our hurts. The grubby fingerprints that a fallen world has put across our lives, the vandalism that a brutal world has scored across, the, the image of God in your soul and mine, that will be redeemed by the Master, by the Lord Jesus Christ. So come and keep trusting him. One writer, Ray Ortland, writes, this we close, Our past is unchangeable in fact. Our story, as it were, is unchangeable in fact, but beautiful in potential, because there is a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer. We can know the author. And we know the author, the one who has written this great story, and we know him and trust him with our small story. We have hope to cope with whatever uh, suffering that we have to face. Amen. Let us bow our heads and come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, We look at the brokenness of the world, the wickedness of man, the injustices and the oppression, the violence and the brutality, whether it's on a national scale, a global scale, a corporate scale, a community scale, or a personal scale. And we thank you that man does not have the last word. Although he seems to have the pen in his hand and writing like a lunatic across the pages of people's lives and across the pages of history, we thank you that there is an author who holds the pen in his hand and who writes the story of time and eternity. And we thank you that that author cared enough to step into his story and astonishingly to lay down his life for the characters that he had created so that they could be redeemed. What an author. What a God that we have. And when we see that, Lord God, we thank you for the hope that it gives us. Not simply hope that there will be a happy ending, but the, the hope that there is a God who cares about our tiny little micro-lives and that a God that we could entrust ourselves to. And we thank you that we see that God not simply high above the heavens, the one who said lights and stage and people and the, the universe exploded into being, not simply that God, but we see our God naked and on a cross, bleeding and crying out in anguish because he cares about the brokenness of our lives and the sinfulness of our hearts. And he cared so much that he came in to this world and went to the cross so that we could have a hope and a future. And we thank you 
that he has risen from the dead so that we can know that the hope is not futile. And we thank you that he is seated on the throne of the universe and will one day make everything new. We thank you for him. And Father, we pray you would help us as we seek to point other people to the hope that is found in your big story and in knowing you, the author. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.